hello everybody. We're continuing in, a, in our series in Romans 9 to 11. And these are very profound texts that we're dealing with. So let's come before the Lord now and ask for his help. Let's pray. Lord, we know that in your wisdom and knowledge, there's great depths and great riches. And so we pray that you'll come now by your spirit and teach us. Amen. I wonder if you've heard of the Museum of Broken Relationships. It's in Croatia and it contains objects that people have donated as a way of processing or perhaps letting go of a love that's been lost. There's a ring um, with a title Promise Ring 2006 to 2009 with a little inscription with it we were two kids who could not keep a promise. Some items are more angry than sad. There's an axe in the museum that was used by one man when his partner declared her love for someone else and went away on a two-week holiday with this new man. When she returned to pick up her furniture, she found 14 piles of debris and garbage hacked up with an axe. There's a double bed mattress cut in two with scissors and pliers by a wife on the day her husband walked out on her and their two children. Relationship breakdowns hurt. They are sad and distressing. And behind the book of Romans in some ways is Paul's experience of relationship breakdown in a way. Now we know his life story. He was a zealous and even violent Jewish man who then had a stunning encounter with the risen Jesus and he became an apostle, a sent one. And we know his practice. Arrive in a town, look for where the Jewish people in that town are meeting, go and proclaim to them Jesus as Messiah. But we know his experience when he did that. Very often he would meet unbelief, hostility, and rejection. What's Paul going to do with that broken relationship with his own people? Is he going to take up an axe, a knife, a pair of pliers? Is he going to express his grief to God? Is he going to get angry in God's face, waving, in a sense, an axe in God's face because God can't keep his promises to Israel? Well, in Romans 9, we see that Paul turns his experience of Jewish unbelief, his experiences of hostility and rejection, into a chance to express compassion and into a chance to explore the Old Testament scriptures. Last week it was that we saw his compassion. Do you remember at the beginning of Romans 9, Paul would rather be condemned himself by God than see any Jewish person experience God's rejection. It's a bold and loving move from Paul at the beginning of Romans 9. And this week we see him searching out his own scriptures, reminding himself and reminding the readers of Romans, reminding us that God has got things in hand. It's not time for angry axe waving in the face of God. It's not time for claiming that God is unjust. But it's time for finding peace in prayerful patience. It's time for peace 
in prayerful patience and it's to notice the delight that can be found in diversity amongst the people of God. Delight in diversity. So let's follow the flow of thought a bit. The background, Jewish people are not turning to Jesus their Messiah in the way in the numbers that Paul might hope and some Gentile people are. And so Paul begins to recall that God has a history of working through some people and not through others. Last week he was meditating on the fact that it, in choosing um, Jacob's line, God didn't choose Esau's line as the line through which the Messiah would come. And so then Paul raises the question that our passage begins with today in verse 14. What are we going to say? Are we going to say that God is unjust? Now, if I had to write an essay, is God unjust, my mind could go off in lots of directions. If, if God chooses one line of a family or one person above another, is he unjust? Well, I could say if a person walks into a prison with a hundred rightfully condemned prisoners in it and releases 27 of them, would that be unfair? Would that be unjust? Well, kind of. But the situation wouldn't be about justice, it would be about mercy. Romans makes it clear that every human being is, rightly con is a rightly convicted sinner in God's eyes. So the fact that God just saves anyone shouldn't get, get us asking questions about justice, but should get us falling down in thankfulness that God would even be merciful to anyone. So that's one idea that we might say in answer to the question, is God just? Another might be that, well, we could talk about Esau and Pharaoh as, as people that God chose or didn't choose. And so therefore they missed out on God's promises or God, God's salvation. Paul certainly here is emphasizing God's decision and choices. And so you can see the question, it begs the question, is God fair? But if we were to read about Esau and Pharaoh in the Old Testament, and if we were to ask them how they experienced their own lives, I think each of them could talk about the genuine choices that they made. There's actually something mysterious about the fact that humans can be making genuine choices, while at the same time, God's choices and sovereign purposes can be playing out. But anyway, I'm not here to write an essay. We're here to listen to Paul. And Paul's mind doesn't go down those two tracks that I just mentioned. He thinks about the flow of God's purposes in history. And he realizes that every act of light sits in the context of darkness. If God is going to choose to free slaves, then he's going to have to choose someone to be the enslaver. And there was a time when Egypt was that enslaver, when Pharaoh had to be the stubborn enslaver. You see, God wanted to show the extent of his patience and his, his mercy. He wanted to show the world the extent of his promise keeping, his merciful power. And so he assigned the role of stubborn enslaver to Pharaoh. And while the book of Exodus does tell us that at times Pharaoh hardened his own heart, 
It's the emphasis here in Romans 9 is that God was hardening his heart. That's the accent that Paul is making here. For a time, in God's purposes, Egypt and Pharaoh had to be stubborn enslavers and then God could show the world his control over rivers and gnats and frogs and darkness and how he could part the sea and how with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm he could set his people free. For God to show the extent of his riches, the, the extent of his mercy, the extent of his grace, there needed to be a stubborn enslaver. And so he hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now that's what Paul's saying in Romans 9. Just to fill it out a bit more, this isn't actually God's last word about Egypt. If we're to read, say, the book of Isaiah, we can find prophecies there that one day people from Egypt will have the chance to be numbered amongst the privileged people of God. They'll be just like Israel. They'll know God and be able to call God their God and they'll be his people. For a time, God had to reject, hate even Esau, so that he could build a line through Isaac to Jacob, to Judah, to Jesus. But the man Job could well be a descendant of Esau. And he was given a unique and profound encounter with God. And people from Edom's line can find life in God, faith in Jesus today. Paul reaches for the image of a potter and a clay to make sense of this. Now we can overread that image, thinking that we as humans are just completely passive in God's hands. But the image is one that comes from the Old Testament prophet and refers to God working with his people and needing to stop and judge them, to uproot and overthrow them in Jeremiah's language in times when those people chose badly and when they lose their way. And we know from Jeremiah that God does this in order to build and to plant. And what Paul is moving toward here in Romans is an appreciation of how he is living in a time when, yes, some people in Israel are being uprooted, but God is still doing something in order to plant. The hardening of Israel is causing the apostles to lift their eyes beyond Jewish synagogues. Those Jewish synagogues dotted around the ancient world, the apostles are lifting their eyes and they are noticing that they can take the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul feels a sense of peace in that that God has got things in hand. He hates the thought that some in Israel seem hardened at the moment to the gospel, but he can find patience and peace in realizing that God the potter has got things in hand. For a time in the first century, God's grand and merciful purposes were being served by the unbelief of some Jewish people. So Paul had no need to get angry at these Jewish people. 
He would do no good by turning back to his old angry, violent ways, by trying to imprison these Jewish people who weren't believing or persecuting them in the way that he'd persecuted Christians. Nor did he need to pick up an axe and shake it in God's face for being unjust. Paul could read his Old Testament, the stories of Esau, the stories of Pharaoh. He could read the book of Isaiah and know that for the sake of God's purposes, sometimes a particular family line needed to be overlooked. That way a Messiah could come in the line that God chose. Sometimes God pur God's purposes need a stubborn and hard-hearted enslaver so that a great act of freedom-making could be performed. Sometimes God's purposes need the unbelief of one group so that the gospel can go to another. I mean, think even about the death of Jesus, that very centre of our faith. For God's amazing love to be shown to the world, God needed someone to be a betrayer. He needed someone to be a weak politician. There had to be someone who picked up the hammer and the nails and pierced the one who was carrying the transgressions of another. God is the potter and over time some clay gets shaped one way, some clay gets taken off the wheel and rolled back into a ball all over again, some clay becomes a garbage bin, some clay becomes a beautiful goblet. Now realising God's work in this way could be quite practical for Paul. Imagine he meets Miriam and Eli in a Gentile city. They're part of the Jewish minority in the city and he, he tells them about Jesus. They scoff and tell him that he's gone crazy. Well, what's Paul's next move? Well, if he, if he believes that God is a potter and that sometimes he's hardening and sometimes he's revealing, well, Paul's next move is he stands in front of Miriam and Eli is to act with patience and to display peace and I imagine to pray as well. You see, Paul is not in control of how and what Miriam and Eli think. He cannot force them into a place of belief. God is the potter. Paul is just clay. Miriam is just clay. Eli is just clay. And who knows what the potter might be planning to do with Miriam and Eli next week or with Miriam and Eli 10 years from now. Well, that's God's business and not Paul's. And so it is with us. Sam drops into open church and you talk with him about Jesus for about half an hour. He's polite. But he thinks all this Christianity stuff is a bit childish and a bit unbelievable. So do you shout at him? Do you get his number and ring him every day until he believes? Or do you sit with patience? Do you demonstrate peace? Do you pray? Do you find peace in the fact that God is the potter 
and you are the clay and Sam is the clay. Your daughter Jackie was a Christian for years. She taught Sunday school and the way she sang the old hymns was really beautiful. But for her now Sundays are just for sleeping. And she says Jesus is, that, is a nice kind of comfort for old people, but it's got no relevance to her. Do you shout at her? Do you argue about Jesus every time you see her? No. You acknowledge a deep dependence on God and you pray to the potter that a new season would come to Jackie that there would be no reason for God to cloud her vision or harden her heart, but that in his mercy he would reveal himself again, freshly, powerfully, relevant, relevantly. And you'll live out what you know of the mercy of the potter God before Jackie, so that she'll think of you not just as an old person finding comfort in old-fashioned religion, but you realise you're that person of love and kindness, of integrity and character and generosity, whose life speaks a powerful word about the transforming power of the gospel. Now, I do just want to stop and notice that something that the Apostle Paul notices, that it's actually hard for us sometimes to admit that God is a potter and we are clay. Who, who are we to question that? We live in a culture that is heady with the aroma of human autonomy. Every time we see an Olympic gold medalist or a Wimbledon champion or a presidential election winner or a grand finalist in football or on MasterChef, they tell us that hard work gets rewarded and that we should follow our dreams. You hear somebody who doesn't want to live in a little village and do farm work, and so you might say to them, oh great, follow your dreams, get some education, move to the city. You've got a friend who says, I don't want to live in New Zealand anymore, and you'd say, that's fine, you can migrate, choose where you live, follow your dream, come, come over to Australia, become an Australian citizen, you can even do that. Someone says to you, I don't want to be white anymore, I think I'm an African person. Oh, hang on. For all our belief in hard work, for all our belief in living the dream, I actually can't be, for an example, an aristocratic French woman in the 17th century, even though that's my dream. I can't be an Arabic-speaking 12-year-old boy in Cairo, even though that might be my dream. There is a givenness of things, a createdness of things, an appointedness of things. We insist, especially in our culture in this century, I have rights, I have dreams. But Romans 9 would say, can you find the peace in saying God is the potter? I am the clay. Now Paul's reading of the Old Testament is not just about Pharaoh and his hard heart. 
He also reminds himself and teaches his readers what the prophets of Israel always knew, that not all Israel is Israel. Paul recalls that in the book of Hosea, God kept the prerogative to call a people out of those who were not his people. Paul recalls that in the book of Isaiah, the people of God were behaving like Gentiles, like Sodom and Gomorrah, and while God could have wiped them all out, he saved some. Because the Lord left some survivors, he says. You see, God in the book of Isaiah realizes that not all Israel is Israel, and when he comes in judgment, he judges those of Israel who are not Israel, but he also keeps a remnant. On the surface of the Old Testament, God's purposes seem to exactly match up with a particular genetic line with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. And God's purposes seem to line up with a particular political entity, the nation of Israel. But really, if you read it a bit more deeply in the Old Testament, the true people of God were only ever a subset of this political entity. And time and time again, even in the Old Testament, people of faith were found outside the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and beyond the borders of Israel. Careful Old Testament reading makes something clear. The people of God were always really a multi-ethnic, diverse group. And in Paul's day, as he moves into the Gentile world, that is coming home vividly and wonderfully. So if Jewish people are not believing and if Gentile people are believing, God has not in any way abandoned his purposes or been untrue to himself or not kept his word. He's actually being thoroughly consistent with who he revealed himself to be in the Old Testament. The book of Romans is written to help the communities of diverse people who are gathering around Jesus to realize that that's what God wants. God delights in their diversity. And so they should accept one another, love one another, and part of this is realizing that this is always what God has been doing. God has always had a delightful desire for diversity. And so should we. Mark Glanville on Facebook today on Thursday, it's, that's when I'm filming, provided me with a nice quote for this part of the sermon. He quoted a lady called Danae Pierre who wrote this, speaking of God's people, this new humanity affirms, subverts, and challenges the identity of the existing tribes by uniting them to those who think and behave differently and asking them to radically and tangibly love one another. It was probably a fitting post as, as American tribes gathered around their political parties. When I googled this Danae Pierre lady, I found that she and her husband had, have got four children of their own but they've also adopted children and fostered children. You see, they understand the gospel, that the gospel is about a God who has never been limited to genetic offspring and to political Israel. God has always been one who adopts and fosters and brings in the stranger. Christ accepted you, 
says the book of Romans. Accept one another also. There's a book about Christian hospitality called The Gospel Comes with a Door Key. The Gospel Comes with a Door Key. The Gospel opens up, that is, practices of acceptance and hospitality. Come around, come over. The Gospel opens up practices like sharing your money beyond your immediate family. The Gospel opens up practices like cooking for people who don't live with you. The Gospel opens up practices of phoning up someone from church who's not your age, who's got different interests from you and different politics, but still you ring them up to see if they're okay and to find out a little about how they're living as a disciple of Jesus. The Gospel opens up shopping and voting and praying with more than your own immediate needs in mind. We become hospitable and accepting as we appreciate in the Gospel how big God is and how big His purposes are. So find peace in that today, in, in the purposes of God. And so practice prayer and practice patience as you wait for God to come and save people. And as he does come and save a diversity of people, be like him and delight in that diversity, the diversity of the new humanity he is creating. Let's pray. Lord, we pray for the gift of peace. Sometimes there are people that we, our hearts ache that they don't belong to you. But we pray for peace in the midst of that and we pray for your work. Lord, sometimes we encounter people who belong to you and we don't feel particularly comfortable with them and we're not sure where we fit. In those contexts, Lord, we pray for a delight in diversity, a delight that reflects your very heart. Amen.